This podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and are not the institutional views of the AIIA. Hello and welcome to what is really a pilot episode of a new podcast that we are launching, which is going to be about what's happening in the world, international relations and foreign affairs, but viewed through an Australian lens. My name is Darren Lim and I teach in the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And with me here in the studio is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute for International Affairs, the AIIA, in partnership with whom we are producing this podcast. Hi there, Darren. Hi there, Darren. Very good to be here. Great. So as I said, this is a special pilot episode, and what we're going to talk about is a single issue, the rules-based international order. And the reason for this topic, um, that we're choosing to start with this topic, is because it's been getting a lot of attention in the media lately, in the punditry and the commentariat. And it feels like every week there's some Trump foreign policy scandal or a story about China's growing power and influence around the world and their leadership aspirations that leads analysts and commentators and opinion writers to pronounce the rules-based international order or the post-World War II order dead or dying or in grave danger. And Alan, I know this is a subject you care about deeply since you organised a two-day conference devoted to this one topic, um, which was sponsored by the AIIA and DFAT and held here at the ANU early in July. So, so we're building on that conference um, in today's podcast, but I really want to jump right into the heart of the matter on the assumption that our listeners have some idea what the, uh, the rules-based international order is. And if you don't, Alan has been writing a lot of great op-eds on this, uh, including uh, in the Australian Financial Review this week, um, and we're recording in late July. So I want to jump right in to, I think, one of the major challenges facing Australia um, and the rules-based international order. When I read speeches from Foreign Minister Julie Bishop and other senior officials uh, and indeed other political leaders over the past 10 years, it's clear that the rules-based international order is central to Australian interests and that defending it is something that is very important for the welfare of our country and our national interests into the future. But equally, there are lots of rules that comprise the order, whether that's about the use of force or how to regulate airplanes flying, and there are some rules that we don't necessarily always comply with. And one of the, the obvious example here is the question of refugees. Um, and we, we have some very firm policies on how we uh, re- treat uh, incoming sort of people who come by boat. Uh, and there is certainly a view elsewhere in the international community that what we are doing violates in some way the rules-based international order surrounding the treatment of refugees. And of course, the Australian government claims that's not the case, that we are in compliance. But we are dealing with accusations of hypocrisy. And so the first question is, how, how can we defend an order when we are seen to be violating one aspect of it? Well, as you say, the, the order has many different um, parts and it's an order and they are rules. It's not law. It's not like the rule of law inside uh, our country. And uh, the international rules-based order is always going to be a sort of a uh, a, uh, a, a complex and rather fuzzy um, uh, system in which 
uh, countries are going to enthusiastically abide by some of the rules that uh, suit them. The ones they like. <laughs> the ones they like. And less enthusiastically, perhaps, or even uh, ignore those that they don't. So Australia is not alone in this no, uh, of course not. rather um, uh, selective uh, approach to, uh, to the rules. But on the whole, uh, Australia has been a better follower of the rules than most countries, and that's because we have a deep interest in it. If you're a country Australia's size and located where we are, you're always going to be better off in a world in which the rules are known and followed and which you've played a part in setting uh, rather than uh, a, a world which is governed by power alone because we don't have all that much of it. But you, you know, have a history of, of, of being in the diplomatic um, corps. You, you're a former diplomat. You've negotiated with world leaders and other officials from other countries. And so let's say you're sitting down with a counterpart from the region and you're talking about an aspect of the order that, say, we care about a lot, say, the maritime order and respecting uh, international law regarding sovereignty claims in the South China Sea and elsewhere. And you say, please, you know, colleague, uh, it would be great. You know, we think that it's in your interest and everyone's interest to comply with these rules. And they shoot back at you. Well, we think it's in your interest that you comply with the Refugee Convention, which we think you're in violation of. What do you say to that, you know, that counterpart from a different country about... You know, the different interests at play and, and how we resolve this tension or this arguable hypocrisy? Well, you defend as enthusiastically and strongly as you can Australia's position on, uh, on the Refugee Convention. And, um, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not here to, uh, uh, to do that, but I am here to say that Australia has made a more substantial uh, um, contribution to the relief of, uh, of uh, human suffering through uh, refugees than many of the countries that would be uh, that uh, might be arguing against us. So I'd defend Australia as, um, Australia's uh, record as best I could, including the number of refugees that we take officially through the UNHCR. But I would say uh, more to the point, uh, the order is has you know different dimensions of it. Let's just talk about the uh, the maritime order because you, whatever the country that's uh, complaining, have as much interest as we do in ensuring that international commerce uh, flows freely, that uh, that uh, tension and uh, and uh, conflict is not sparked uh, by uh, people who are not uh, following rules, which all of us, all of us. Uh, agreed to uh, to follow in the UN Law of the Sea uh, Convention. Uh, well, I might put a pit on that in terms of all of us because it's not clear that the United States has agreed to follow. <laughs> no, the United rules, States. Well, the United States says that it follows. <laughs> uh, but we, that hasn't actually. We can come back to that because that's something I do want to return to. But on this very point, you know, you, what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is that we sort of have the debate within the issue itself and say, okay, refugees is, yeah. and Refugee Convention is one set of issues. We're talking about the maritime order today and your interest in complying with that. But let's say they keep going and the official that you're talking with presses you and is not going to let this go. Is one possible response to say, well, if we're going to talk about refugees, let's talk about the, the history of this order. It was set up in the in immediate aftermath of World War II to deal with a particular set of problems that came out of World War II, especially the treatment of Jews and the Holocaust. But of course, there were far fewer refugees back then, um, and it was much less uh, politically controversial um, at the time for governments to take large flows of, of, of refugees. 
particularly from, from Western and Eastern Europe. But it's clear that the order as constructed back then, um, regulating the flow, flows of refugees, um, is not suited um, for today's 21st century challenges. And so it's clear, um, or at least it might be clear, clear from my point of view, I think, that changes are needed to, in, in the, this order um, governing refugees and that we as a, a country want to take, Australia want to take an active role in, in reforming that order so that it suits, you know, 21st century challenges. Might that be one way, you know, then to approach foreign officials and say, what are your concerns regarding uh, maritime order or some other order that we care about? And how can we look to reform or change the rules that suit your interests in ways that, you know, that matter to you, but also achieve our objectives um, you know, more broadly? Yeah, well, two, two points about that. Um, uh, one is that that debate about the Refugee Convention does go on behind closed doors okay. uh, um, here. But the argument against <clears throat> going back and starting all over again is mm. that you might not get even what you've got now <laughs> okay. if you uh, if you uh, if you wanted to do it. And the 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 sort of deep issues of uh, protecting uh, people who who are um, uh, who who are suffering from uh, discrimination and uh, and violence and and oppression. Uh, you 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 you'd have to be you'd have to be very confident that you could get something better than what you got now if you threw all that uh, up in the air. So I'm not you know sure that that's the way uh, out of this. Uh, the second issue though is that all rules change all the time. People talk about the rules based order, and you see this a bit in the sort of. Um, remarks that uh, ministers and uh, pundits uh, make as though it's a set and established mm -hmm. thing. But even the rules-based order we've known since the end of the Second World War has been constantly in flux. I mean, when, when it started out, we didn't have a UN convention on the law of the sea to complain that China was... <laughs> uh, uh, was um, uh, ignoring. Uh, we didn't have rules on issues like climate change mm -hmm. uh, and the environment. There are new institutions now, like the uh, World Trade Organization. They didn't didn't exist. So, yeah. so of course, the order is always um, changing because the world changes, and it uh, has to reflect that. And so, that's one of the really big uh, challenges for Australia now. On this question of change, you know, one of the, I think, normative changes that Australia has been a very strong proponent of is in relation to the responsibility to protect. And indeed, ANU's Chancellor Gareth Evans, a former foreign minister of Australia, uh, has been instrumental in, in pushing uh, this really progressive agenda that governments have a responsibility to protect their own people. Uh, and if they don't or can't, then the international community has a responsibility to, to, to step up and, and do something. Now, this R2P doctrine was used um, as, I think, a real thrust or, or justification for the intervention in Libya uh, in 2011, which ultimately led uh, to the downfall of, of the, the former leader, Libyan leader, Gaddafi, and his br brutal death. Uh, and since that time, Libya has not exactly been a stable country. But I think what you have seen as a result of that um, episode is a real pushback from other uh, countries, particularly 
China and Russia, members of the United Nations Security Council's Permanent Five, who have argued the international community went too far with R2P uh, and that the challenge to sovereignty and to the, the right of governments to you know, manage their internal affairs was really you know, undermined by this progressive reform, this evolution of the order, and we need to pull right back. How does Australia sort of you know, support such a progressive reform um, but navigate the tensions that you're going to get real pushback and actually that may harm the, the, the application or the, the running of the order in the present day, for example, the Security Council's relative inaction on Syria? Well, there's a, the, um, the responsibility uh, to protect emerged out of the real uh, horror that many people in the international community had about uh, mass atrocity crimes in places Rwanda. like Rwanda. And, uh, and former Yugoslavia, uh, Yugoslavia, and so on, and a discussion which uh, Gareth Evans was, um, you know, important uh, part of, uh, that said, look, there, there's got to be some limit to one of the deepest rules of the rules-based order, which is non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries. Sovereignty. Something that came out of the Peace of Westphalia mm. in, in uh, 1648. Uh, so that, that that's a very deep rule, but the argument uh, that uh, people who were who are struggling uh, with the you know piss poor international response to these mm-hmm. uh, to these other uh, disasters was there's got to be a limit on um, on uh, on sovereignty, and in certain circumstances, and the circumstances were actually really quite limited narrow and mm. really quite narrow and had to have the approval of the uh, of the uh, united nations that that the community the international community had a, had a responsibility to overstep the rule on uh, on national sovereignty as you say that got um uh over there was a bit of overstretch on that in uh, in Libya, and there's now greater debate. But the norm is sort of embedded now in the system. Mm-hmm. It's there. It's not a it's not a rule. It's not a, the uh, an international treaty on the responsibility <laughs> no. to to protect. But it is. Uh, but it is there, and in future circumstances, it will be part of the international debate and it will be one of the issues that will enable the international community to put pressure on states and, if necessary, to uh, intervene uh, where these mass atrocity crimes occur. Okay, I wanted to bring us back to the United States because we foreshadowed this earlier. You know, what's interesting to me um, when thinking about comparing Australia's approach to the order and that of the US is even in an issue area where we do face criticism like the Refugee Convention, the Australian government argues very strenuously that we are in compliance um, because we see the value in, in upholding rules, even if they're ones that don't fully suit our interests. Yeah. Donald Trump doesn't see the world that way. And he's willing to say, no, I'm just going to ignore whatever rules. They don't work for us. They're a bad deal. Uh, the WTO was a bad deal for the US. Other international institutions, you know, NATO, given how much the US pays, or at least John Trump says that they do to support that organisation, a bad deal. These things don't matter. 
And so there's a real difference there between, you know, maybe contorting um, yourself into compliance with a rule uh, mm. and just saying that rule is, you know, not applicable. Yeah. Is that doing more damage, do you think, um, to the order or facing a greater threat than, than sort of this contortion that Australia may or may not be go, uh, engaging in? How do you think about the iconoclastic approach that Donald Trump is taking um, to the order? Um, it, what dangers does it pose or is it, you know, something that we can, that will pass? Well, I think it poses real dangers because um, <clears throat> the United States itself was the country which did more than any other to put in place the order which is now is now challenging. So the issues like um, uh, a free and open international uh, trading system are there because uh, during the war, the United States insisted that uh, the allies to which it was providing financial support sign on to uh, to just such a uh, such a world. So it's it means more that the United States is uh, backing away from it uh, than if other countries were. But it's also a measure, really, of an underlying factor in all this, which is that. Um, if you big, you can get away with more, <laughs> more, more than if you're um, if you're not so big. <clears throat> As I said before, our um, you know Australia's got a deeper interest in people following the rules and the world being predictable than the United States does or China does, um, arguably. So uh, so easier for them to do it than for us. Is there a difference though between you know the overt iconoclasm of Donald Trump, you know, the overt opposition. And what the US has long done, which is say, when we encounter a piece of the order that we don't fully agree with, we're just not going to sign up. Hmm. So they're not a signatory or, you know, ratified member of the United Nations Convention on the War of the Sea. They're not part of the International Criminal Court. Uh, And not just that they're not part of it, but they lobbied intensely um, other members of the court to essentially agree to never send a US troop a uh, US mil- member of the US um, military to the court, um, albeit for reasons that you can argue are, are good ones and that they wanted to be able to deploy troops to achieve security objectives around the world. But it's not like you know Trump is that newer phenomenon. Um, is, do you see a difference in, in, in his approach to the long history of the US as a, a great power just sort of doing what it wants more of the time? Or is this more of the same? Um, is there more of a consistency in the US approach? He's more honest about it <laughs> and, he's, and he's more blatant uh, about it than others have been. Uh, and he's able to be, or he wants to be more blatant about it because the, uh, he's you know, politically inside the United S- States, um, it's no longer as easy uh, to uh, to argue to the you know people of the um, you know Midwest uh, that uh, this world has served them uh, well, um, you know one of the big things that's changed, of course, is that the Cold War uh, has ended, and that was uh, that was a, a really important element in keeping the United States uh, committed to the order itself and to its allies. Um, power has changed in the world uh, since then, and we're seeing all the manifestations of that. Well, speaking of, ch- of changing power, let's turn to China then. 
And you do find a lot of commentary, albeit mostly coming out of the United States, that China is this grave threat. Mm. You know, what it's doing is a grave threat to their rules-based international order. But if you look a bit deeply, you see China very much engaged with the existing elements of the system. You know, they are the largest contributor to UN peacekeeping operations of the permanent five members. Mm. Uh, they're very active in the World Trade Organization, uh, you know, using whatever bureaucratic and legal tools they have to assert their interests. But again, within the framework of the WTO, uh, President Xi Jinping has overtly defended the trading order. Uh, and so it seems like there are lots of bits of the of the system that China likes and is willing to put resources into defend. So what is the origin of these claims that China is a threat? Um, are they overblown? What should we be looking to in evaluating, you know, whether China is a net positive or a net threat to the existing order? Uh, I think they, the, the the origin of them is basically what's been happening in the in the South China Sea. Now, mm -hmm. some of what's been happening in the South China Sea is not actually in breach of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. If you want to sort of turn subsurface features into islands by pouring <laughs> tons of sand on them, you can uh, you can do it, and plenty of other countries around the world have done it. Yep. What you just can't do then is claim uh, that this uh, generates a you get to uh, keep all the fish ter territorial sea, and you keep all the. Uh, and you keep all the fish. So that's, uh, uh, you know, the, the actions in the South China Sea became emblematic of growing Chinese power yes. in a part of the world in which the United States had been the uh, predominant power ever since the end of the, uh, of the Second World uh, War. So a lot of the discussion in Australia, um, not so much now since Donald Trump and the, uh, and the WTO, but earlier, um, the rules-based order was essentially seen as the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea in, mm -hmm. the, in the South China uh, Sea. So that's what, um, that's what focused the attention. But as you say, I, I think uh, China has done extremely well a point that Donald Trump has also pointed out, out of the international yes. uh, rules-based uh, order. And there are large uh, elements of it from the you know, international civil aviation uh, regime to climate change to, uh, uh, to trade, uh, where China's been a, a, a pretty supportive. I'm told that, uh, for example, China is uh, helpful now on issues like reform of the UN as an institution, a perennial problem for any diplomat in yes. uh, New York. But now that China has to pay more of the um, of the money, they suddenly have an interest in this being more efficient than it has been. So, uh, so it's going to be mixed. It's going to be mixed. And that mixed report, if we think about that in future areas, um, challenges that we're facing that the international community needs to solve you have things like climate change, uh, that you have things like new weapons of war, autonomous um, you know, drones uh, used as areas of war, artificial intelligence. Cyber um, is a new domain in which China has a very you know, clear set of interests, particularly around regulating the flows of information inside their own uh, country. We, know, we all know of the Great Firewall, which prevents, you know, blocks many Western websites like the New York Times or the BBC from uh, being shown on, you know, on, in China, on the Chinese internet. And it does seem like China has been very active in supporting a particular version of what it calls cyber sovereignty. 
So when you think about these different issue areas, I guess, is it also a mixed report where there are some things where we can be confident that we'll be able to work with China and other rising powers and others where there are go there's going to be more contestation and, and disagreement? Oh, yeah. We're going to have a, a completely different set of, um, uh, of interests in dealing with uh, all, all the sort of um, uh, major powers. For example, we will, we Australia, will have probably more interests in common with China on the international trading system than we will with India, which is uh, which is uh, much more protectionist in the in the way of different economy, uh, yes, different uh, economy. But <clears throat> we're going to have uh, far more interests with India than we are with uh, China on uh, you know rules of cyberspace and so on. Okay, well, there's sort of one last big topic that I want to turn to, uh, and forgive me, dear listeners, for getting a bit academic um, for a moment, but. As a, a, you know, a scholar or a student of international relations, one of the interesting features of the rules-based international order to me uh, is that at its founding, it was one of the most intrusive um, factors in sovereignty, this, the, this idea of sovereign independence and uh, you know, protection from interference from domestic um, affairs that we'd ever seen. So there were a whole bunch of rules that were set up uh, in the aftermath of World War II that regulated trade, that regulated the use of force, civil aviation, you know, maritime issues. And these required countries to sign up to rules that by definition meant that they weren't able to pursue their own policy agendas fully. But part of the deal in agreeing to this multilateral rules-based framework was that countries had the ability to still uh, develop welfare states and develop protections domestically to keep public support for this order. And we call this in the academic literature embedded liberalism. It's a very, you know, very complex term. And the reason I mention all this is because I see one of the major threats to the rules-based international order today as coming from domestic politics. I think Donald Trump, uh, the phenomenon of Brexit, far-right nationalism and populism in Europe and albeit and indeed around the world, you see leaders criticising the global globalism and the sovereignty impinging institutions of the EU or the UN. Former One Nation Senator uh, Malcolm Roberts once described the United Nations as unelected swill and said that Australia should, you know, should leave the UN. And so there's this real undercurrent of we want to reclaim our sovereignty when, when, when we, we live in nationalism and in, in our own country. And these rules and these institutions, these faceless bureaucrats in New York and Geneva are taking away our own independence. And it's that current of populism and nationalism that has led to these political movements, which in turn lead then to the iconoclastic, you know, disruptive policies of people like Donald Trump or the UK leaving the, uh, potentially leaving the EU. Is this a threat? Uh, how should we think about maintaining domestic support for the order? Does Australia need to worry itself with that, those political problems when thinking about how best to defend the order into the future? Well, it's nothing new, of course, um, <coughs> Darren. I mean, one, one of the interesting uh, things about the Australian approach to this new post-war system from, from the beginning was the insistence uh, that uh, Evatt and uh, and Chifley and officials, uh, with names familiar to us around the ANU, like John Crawford, in mm -hmm. whose 
you know, the building that we're, we're sitting, sitting right in now, we're, we're sitting in right now, uh, insisted on something which they called the positive approach. So the argument Australia put when drawing up the UN Charter and so on was that this had to serve the interests of our uh, domestic constituencies as well as others. So issues like full employment mm -hmm. were worked into the Charter of the United Nations at Australian assistance, insistence. So we've got a long um, and you know, pretty important uh, history in understanding that link between an international system is only, rules-based system is only, the only point you have it really, is uh, well partly to ensure that we don't blow each other don't, up, uh, blow each other up, <laughs> and partly uh, to ensure that all the citizens of our countries that are members of that order uh, are better off. Uh, so yes, it is. I don't think the issue is as bad here in Australia as it is in other places. And mm -hmm. if you look at polling from the Lowy Institute, uh, for example, there's still a pretty broad appreciation uh, here that um, you know international trade is. Uh, is good for us, and that uh, openness is um, not the divisive issue that it is in parts of Europe and the United States, but we certainly can't take that for granted and we have to keep working at it. We're recording this on the 25th of July, and I note that Scott Morrison, I think in the last few days, the Treasurer of Australia, has noted that we need some reform of the WTO. I just I saw a tweet about it. I think you mentioned it to me in conversation, Alan. Is this the kind of thing that Australia needs to countenance where some of the most, you know, maybe impressive and enduring features of the order, because they no longer have domestic support, they're seen as being the source of economic malaise or you know, some sense of grievance, that we might need to roll back some of the, uh, the current features in order to maintain political support? Or what... What's the path forward here? I mean, we might support it here in Australia, but the voters of Northeast Ohio or the English Midlands maybe don't. Uh, and if we can't bring them with us, does, isn't that a big problem? Well, it is, it, it, it is a big problem. And that's one of the reasons why Scott Morrison and Australian ministers uh, uh, generally have been arguing so you know, forcefully, really, in groups like uh, APEC and mm -hmm. the... Uh, and the G uh, and the G20 that we have to uh, we have to hold the line, and we have to hold the line not simply because it's good for us, but because basic economics <laughs> says that we're all going to be uh, better off if we don't put up the sort of protectionist barriers that brought disaster in the uh, in the 1930s. We're about to find out with Brexit, I suppose, <laughs> because. March 2019 is coming and it does seem to me like the costs of leaving the EU for, for Great Britain uh, are going to be very high. Concentrating uh, the minds over there enormously. Well, that's, I think, one of the interesting points, right, that if it is true that the international rules that we've created do generate positive economic benefits, um, even if we can't see them immediately and maybe take them for granted, when you take them away, then you would expect people to realise this and start to become more active politically. And so the very same currents that led to the nationalist populist movement that caused Brexit might start seeing equal opposition from those who are benefiting. Uh, As Joni Mitchell used to sing, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. <laughs> okay, well, I think that's a great note to leave today's special episode. 
Uh, I want to thank a few people who have helped make this possible, uh, in particular Manny Bovell, who's our audio engineer, uh, Martin Pearson, Maya Bandari from here at the Crawford School, where we are recording today for their assistance and technical support, and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Uh, we also want to thank Melissa Conley-Tyler, who's the CEO of the AIIA, for helping us get this venture off the ground. There's going to be more to come in future weeks, so please keep an eye out on social media for announcements. Um, we're looking forward to doing this again more regularly and discussing the news, uh, current events of the day, as well as deep dive issues like the Rules-Based International Order on future episodes of the podcast and perhaps even get some high-profile guests in to have a chat too. So it's been lots of fun. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Darren. And uh, we'll see you all, hear from you all again soon. Thank you very much.